Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Stonehenge. Stonehenge has been on the subject of this podcast before. It is, in many ways, the most famous monument in Britain and Ireland. It is the one monument that Barack Obama, when he was president, asked if he could stop Marine One, his helicopter, and between some kind of G8 or whatever it's called, meetings. And he stopped, he landed there, and he toured around it. He was so keen to see it. It's a monument that I've visited time and again over the course of a career as we learn new things, new archaeology, new insights into Stonehenge and its surrounding area. It's always a joy. It's a place of magic, a place of mystery that draws huge crowds throughout the year, but also and especially at the solstice, at the equinox, when people get up near the stone and can lay their hands on the stones. I've attended those gatherings. I've been there in rain. I've been there in shine. I've been in the sun's coming up, peeking over the horizon, hitting the stones. I've been there when the stones are covered in snow and the skies are overcast. And it's never, ever disappointed. One of the most interesting times I visited it was actually not for work, but when my wife and I we're blessed we have three wonderful children. You may have heard in the podcast. Um, but we lost one baby late in my wife's pregnancy, very late on. It was a terrible event, traumatic event. And for some reason, I don't know why, we just got in the car. We decided to take a day out and we just went to Stonehenge, went to look at the stones. And it was a very special thing to do. And I think it was a very healing thing to do as well. So Stonehenge has always been very close to my heart. It's been a very special place for me and my family. It's wonderful that the British Museum are going to do one of their huge blockbuster exhibitions on Stonehenge. They feel that we have all spent two years locked up on this island. Many of us haven't done the foreign travel that we've become used to, and we've re-engaged with what's around us. And nowhere more so than Stonehenge, which has seen huge numbers of visitors over the last two years. I'm very pleased that Neil Wilkin, he's the curator of the Stonehenge exhibition at the British Museum. He's coming on the podcast now to talk all about it. If you wish to watch a programme I made at Stonehenge a year or two ago for History Hit TV, it's our own history channel, you can go and subscribe. If you click the link in the description of this podcast, you get whisked over to History Hit TV. You can subscribe on your smart TV, on your phone, on your laptop, on your tablet device for a very small amount of money. And you can watch a programme at Stonehenge, one of my most successful programmes ever, in fact, a documentary about Stonehenge, but also lots of other wonderful Stonehenge documentaries on there. For example, The First Britons, in which we look at some of the oldest archaeological remains of the humans that lived on this island. So lots and lots of Stonehenge material, lots of material right the way through history. So please go and check it out. But in the meantime, Please enjoy this discussion with Neil Wilkin, curator of the Stonehenge exhibition at the British Museum, talking all about the stones. Enjoy.
Neil, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Why did you guys decide to do a massive Stonehenge? Is it the new stuff? Is it the fact that you realise we haven't really talked about it for a while? Like, what is it? Yeah, well, it's all those things. It's the fact that we've never done an exhibition on Stonehenge, but it is one of, if not the most iconic monument in Britain, one of the most iconic monuments in the world. It's our version of the pyramids, if you like. So to us, that was kind of shocking that there hadn't been an exhibition on that subject. But you're right. There's also something else, which is the last 20, 30 years, there's been a lot of new excavation in the landscape around Stonehenge. There's been lots of fantastic discoveries across Britain and Europe from the time of Stonehenge. And there's been a lot of scientific discoveries, things like ancient DNA, that have really um, revolutionised how we can talk about not just the monument, but I think also importantly, the people who built the monument. So that was really important to us because that's where objects come in. Objects, let's talk about people. So those things came together. And then there's a third thing I should mention, which is it feels like a great moment to do this exhibition because we've all been in lockdown. We've all been kind of going out and maybe appreciating nature a bit more appreciating the British countryside a bit more. So it feels like just that time when people are starting to ask some questions about the kind of deep past, the deep history of the landscape that they've been enjoying walking around during this kind of really difficult couple of years. So that's the other aspect. It feels like the right time to do this show. Totally, man. I think we're all reconnecting with well, I'm not because I spend my whole goddamn life in those places anyway, but I think lots of people are reconnecting with the world-class heritage that is on our doorstep. From Orkney to Cornwall, I completely agree. So let's just rehearse what we think we know about Stonehenge. Where are we 5,000 years ago, do we think? So the first monument at Stonehenge is built 5,000 years ago. But kind of amazingly, and this is something we touch on in the exhibition at the BM, there's lots going on in that Stonehenge landscape thousands of years before the first Stonehenge is built. So it's clearly an important place even before 5,000 years ago. But it's 5,000 years ago that the first monument comes into being, and that's with the blue stones. Amazingly, they're brought from Wales all the way to Salisbury Plain. Four and a half thousand years, of course, Great Pyramid of Giza. So that it is, as you say, kind of pyramid contemporary. Let's talk about that landscape, though, because that's really important, your point. It is obviously a sacred space, even well before Stonehenge. Now, I'm dredging up the memory banks here, but is that something because of the chalk downland that would have been very heavily wooded in southern England, but that would have been a big open area of open heathland? How do we describe that? Yeah, exactly. So when you visit today, you see a really open landscape, and that's been very carefully managed by English Heritage and National Trust. And that really is how the landscape would have appeared for much of the time that the Stonehenge Monument was being visited and worshipped. And what you have to remember is that the rest of the country, and much of it is still under tree cover, under wood, and is unimproved land. So I think as an area of open landscape, that's really interesting if you're not used to it. But I think also as rich agricultural land, that's somewhere you can have your animals, your cattle. But uh, there's another aspect that I kind of really realised when I visited this week with a group of colleagues um, we were visiting. And the thing that I'd kind of been missing was that that big landscape means that there's a big sky. You know, when you don't have tree cover, when you've got these sort of rolling areas, the sky is somehow more present. You're more aware of what's happening with the movement of the sun and no doubt at nighttime with the stars. So I'm sure that in terms of Thinking about your place in the world, which is what Stonehenge does. It lets people sort of find their place in the world and celebrate and anchor that. The sky and its presence 
is a really important aspect of why the monument's there. What's the latest thing on how they did get those stones from Wales? I think it's a combination of sheer determination and the use of water to help a little bit. But clearly, for the vast majority of the route, they had to take those bluestones over land. And I think you can't underestimate the amount of effort that was needed. And I think what that tells you, I mean, I'm sort of moving the question on a bit, but I think what it tells you is how much people wanted to move those stones because it's such an undertaking and such a logistic nightmare. Because remember, these people who are moving the stones have got other things to do. They are farmers. They have to look after their crops and their animals. So to give up the time to move those stones and problem solve about how to get them over hill and dale, I think you need to have a real passion and a real religious almost fervour that this is the right thing to do. And that by moving these stones, you're really going to solve your problems or at least make a real statement to the gods. So I think while the details of how they moved them are still a little bit cloudy, the fact they did it tells us a lot about their investment in the plan. I think it also tells us about this idea of national identity. Like if you're moving stuff from Wales, you're obviously kind of, are you crossing a tribal, familial, um, I don't know, state, whatever the word is, like boundaries. And that's what's really interesting about Stonehenge. It does look like it's a place for the whole of the island of Britain, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. On that trip, you know, they must have encountered other villages, other people. And can you imagine the spectacle? All of a sudden, someone with a huge bluestone comes over the horizon. I mean, that's going to, you're not going to forget that. That's going to be a really memorable moment. But also, as you say, it's a moment where people are meeting and maybe joining in. So maybe the locals join in and they help move that stone for a bit of the journey. But to go back to the kind of technology of it, because I think that is important. What we know from that time, from things like the sweet track, is that people were very skilled at building these wooden walkways and trackways. And there's no doubt from new research by um, Dr. Mike Pitts, that they're probably using these trackway-like structures to move the stones along to aid the movement of them. So they're using their engineering skills that they've picked up in building other wooden walkways and trackways to inform how to move the bluestones as well. So we get this initial first Stonehenge. Now, what about the really big stones from slightly near, although still a long way away? When do they get added? Would you believe they come to the site 500 years after the bluestones? And they're the Saracen stones. So they probably come from the Marlborough Downs. And it's not a million miles from Stonehenge. It's about 20, 30 kilometres. But as you know, they're so massive that they pose different types of challenge, the sheer logistics of moving really massive, heavy zones. Any kind of distance is one that people have been puzzling over for a long time. And again, we think that wooden trackways as a kind of way of sliding those stones along would have been really important. And one theory is that there was a kind of continuous trackway that ran like a train line, you know, that ran from the quarry site, which is we currently think somewhere like West Woods in near Marlborough, all the way to the Stonehenge construction site. And you know, that's an astonishing thing to think of this sort of trackway that's extending right across the landscape at this really early time before roads, before good evidence for wheeled transport. You've got this sort of trackway. So a really major piece of engineering. You listen to Dan Snow's History, We're talking Stonehenge. More coming up. 
the Ides of March, the 15th of March, it's perhaps the most famous, or shall we say infamous day in the ancient history world because it was on that day in 44 BC that Julius Caesar, dictator of Rome, was assassinated in a Senate meeting. But what do we know about the events of the Ides of March 44 BC? Did Shakespeare get anything right? And what happened next? Well, every Sunday this March on the Ancients from History Hit, we're going to find out. This is the time for our special mini-series of episodes all about the Ides of March, the events of the day itself, the legacy of this day in ancient history, some of the characters involved, and so much more. So make sure you tune into the Ancients from History Hit every Sunday for our special Ides of March mini-series. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History Hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast, all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. Okay, well, this is the big question. Do you think it was ever completed? Yeah, I personally think it was completed. I hope it was. I want it to have been. Do you? Yeah, I think it's nice to think that the investment that they put into doing those, uh, you know, what we see today, if you're going to put that kind of investment in, then you're probably invested in finishing the job and you've definitely got the skills to finish the job, let's face it. So I like to think that it was a full circle. But as you allude to, because it's not complete now and there are missing stones, you can't be entirely sure that it was ever a complete circle. So we can't be sure. We all hope it was completed because it just hurts the brain if they ever even completed it. Dare we wonder what 
it meant? Yeah, so something the exhibition does is it kind of makes the point that we've been making, which is that the monument isn't just one monument. You know, we've talked about two different phases, but actually there was multiple phases in the construction where stones were moved around. And over that time period of about really 1,500 years when the monument was being modified and changed, new stones brought in, other stones moved around. During that time, there's no doubt that its meaning also shifted. So one myth we're trying to explode in the exhibition is that it meant one thing for all time. In fact, it's quite clear that it meant different things. And to just give an example of that, we have objects from the first Stonehenge, that blue stone monument in the exhibition. And at that point, the monument was a cemetery. So it was a place for the cremated dead. And amazingly, some scientific research suggests that some of those cremated individuals were being brought, the cremated bones were being brought from Wales. So it wasn't just the blue stones that were moving, it was potentially people's ancestors, people's relatives that were making the same journey to this new homeland, this new area or this ceremonial area that was set aside. So it's a big cemetery to begin with. And then by the time the big Sarsons come in, so 500 years after the blue stones, the monument has shifted its meaning and it's a very clean site, which really frustrates museum curators and archaeologists because there aren't a huge amount of objects from that period. But that's a really important fact. The absence is really important. Like a cathedral, the monument's been kept really clean. And we think by that point, its meaning, its purpose is much more ceremonial to do with those solstice events that everyone hears about in the summer and the winter and the news. You see pictures of people celebrating at Stonehenge, those were also really important way back in the time of the Saracens. So it was a place of ceremony and a place of gathering. What's quite interesting is that the monument isn't massive. That's often a comment that people make. It's not as big as I thought it would be. And that's quite interesting too, because clearly not everyone in those ceremonies could fit within the inner sanctum of the circle. So is there a sense in which the monument is also to do with social relations? who's important, who's not, who's religious, who's not. So there's an element to which the monument's also telling us about the way in which people were maybe separated by access to the monument by that point. And then if I can go on a bit, the monument after it's become a ceremonial place becomes a focus point for burial. So when you stand inside Stonehenge and look outside it, the landscape, the horizons dotted with these bumps and barrows, burial mounds, where the dead were placed. And so after it's become a ceremonial site, it becomes this sort of almost like a Mecca-like sanctum where people want to be buried close to, to gain that kind of relationship or connection to as important members of society who are buried in that landscape. So that's just three different examples of how over its life, its meaning changed. And those are things that we can start to unpick through the objects that we show through the different areas of the exhibition. I'm fascinated by the animal bones, the burials, the metal objects. Like, to what else do we learn about relations with Europe or other parts of this island or archipelago that we live on? What keep telling me? Yeah, very interesting. So, around the time the Saracens come to Stonehenge, there's another huge monument which you may have heard of called Darrington Walls, which is down the river, down the Avon from Stonehenge. And it seems to be really intimately connected with what's happening at Stonehenge around 4,500 years ago. And it's been described as a kind of um, part sacred site, part camp for the workers who are building the Saracen version of Stonehenge. 
And at that site, there's lots of evidence, unlike Stonehenge, which I said is kept quite clean like a cathedral, down at Durrington Walls, that's where the sort of Glastonbury-style parties are happening. And you've got people feasting on barbecued pork and probably something with a bit more of an edge, alcoholic drinks from containers called grooveware pots. All those things are in the exhibition. Those evidence of feasting and partying are in the show. But to answer your point about connections, some recent scientific work on the pigs that are brought to Stonehenge for these big pork barbecues, those pigs seem to have come from pretty far away. And there's still a bit of debate about how far away but some people think they're coming and being driven to Stonehenge from maybe as far away as Scotland even. That's one theory. Or at least from a really pretty far hinterland around the monument. So you've got that sense of people coming together, perhaps around the winter solstice. That's what the pig bone evidence seems to suggest. And having these big parties in advance of going to Stonehenge and either constructing the monument or worshipping at the monument. We haven't said the obvious bit yet, which is tell me about its solar alignment. Lots of really excellent work being done on different alignments with the moon and sun. But the point I'd make is that the key solar alignments to do with the way the whole monument is orientated, its key axes and the way you approach it down the avenue, those are on the midsummer sunrise and the midwinter sunset. So the solstices. And the reason those are so important, something we really go to town on in the exhibition, is that the sun for farmers is, as you know, completely critical. It's the thing that brings the calendar around, that helps your crops to grow. And at that midwinter point, there's that fear, I suppose. And I think we still get it when we get the January blues. There's a fear that it's winter and it's dark and it might not get light again. You might not get your summer. So that sort of moment when the sun is at its weakest, that seems to be the time when people really wanted to undertake these ceremonies perhaps to guarantee, to ensure, to celebrate the fact that there was going to be light again, there was going to be the return of life, perhaps to do with the ancestors as well, the return regeneration of the dead at that kind of critical turning moment. I tell you, if I could have witnessed any scene in history, it would have been one of those moments. Yeah, it'd be great. We do know more than we used to, but we don't really know anything about those people. I mean, we don't know how they were organised and their politics. It's just so fascinating, isn't it? There is a frustration to it as well, obviously, and it's something that we've been very careful to try and address in the exhibition is we don't have named individuals. We don't even have the kind of tribe names that you get later on in the Celtic Iron Age period. So you can't really talk about that. But what you can show is that people shared lots of things. They shared the same type of pottery between Orkney and Stonehenge. People that visited Orkney for midwinter or midsummer would be using the same types of pot as they did at Stonehenge. And I find that amazing because we think, oh, well, both of those are in what we know as the UK. But before the UK, before the nation states, that distance between Orkney up in the north and down here in southern England is a major trip, a major undertaking. And yet it feels like, it seems like, people were capable of making those journeys or that the culture of the islands of Ireland and Britain was similar enough that people were doing the same sorts of things. So does that mean they're speaking the same language? I would say there's a pretty high chance they were. It doesn't mean they understood and worshipped the same 
principles and gods. Again, I would say, given the similarities between what's happening in Ireland and uh, Bruna Boyne, the uh, Boyne Valley, and what's happening up in Stenness and Orkney and Brodgar there, and what's happening in Avebury and Stonehenge, I would say that the similarities between those monuments, the things that we call henges and stone circles, you would say these people are worshipping the same sorts of ideas, principles and religious ideas. And so to me, you're right, we can't get at the detail, but you can start to unpick the connections. And that's what we do in the show. You can say, look at the art on tombs in Orkney. Isn't it similar to the chalk objects that you find in East Yorkshire? And to my mind, that's going to be a real revelation to people visiting the exhibition. Those long distance links. What did you know about the fall of Stonehenge? Did it ever fall? Did it lose its centrality in British spiritual life? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that it did start to lose its appeal and its power. And I think that happened at a very interesting time in the history of these islands. And it happened around the time that metal, bronze, the first sort of metal to be introduced, started to become dominant. And with that, trade links, particularly between the south of England and the continent, so France really, became much more important as a way of connecting to sources of power. But also I think we have to remember that the exchanges that are happening are not sort of dry economic exchanges. The objects that people are acquiring have sort of spiritual or even cosmological power invested within them. So the people who had access to metal, particularly along the south coast of England, start to be able to command greater power. And it's around that time that you see modifications to Stonehenge starting to shift. And something really interesting happens at Stonehenge, and that is that people start to almost graffiti the monument. And what they start to carve onto the stones, and there's hundreds of these, and if you can get close enough to the stones, you can just about see them. They start to carve metal objects. They start to carve representations of axes and daggers onto the stones. And that in many ways symbolizes this new world that's emerging around 4,000 years ago, where metal is the power that makes the world go round, if you like. That's the time that you start to see modifications to the monuments stopping. And as I say, more elaborate burials and objects are now located further south within access of the Channel or the North Sea. And that's a major moment. It's a major moment in the history of the country and it's a major moment in the history of Stonehenge as well. It's the kids. The kids with their new uh, toys. They're turning away from the old ways. New materials and new ideas. You know, it was always so, wasn't it? You know, that's what always happens. You get these revolutions of material. You get the latest iPhone. You get silicon chips. It changes who has the access to the power. So it's now Silicon Valley rather than the industrial heartlands. It has that effect. Stonehenge is left, but what I find fascinating is that it's not knocked down. Thank God it's not knocked down by anyone. Even in more religious times when some of these sites are considered pagan and potentially evil, the stones are left. And that does suggest that even after it lost its real influence, there's still a sense of respect and wonder for those hanging lintels, those standing stones. Kids, they're not reading books anymore. They're on their TikToks. That's the problem with these kids. Okay, Neil, thank you very much indeed. I mean, we could do a whole separate thing about the life of Stonehenge through recorded history, which I think is fascinating. And maybe you'd let us talk to you about that at some stage. The exhibition, which I'm looking forward to coming to you very much, is when? The exhibition closes on the 17th of July. So a good few months for people to visit and see some of what I think are the wonders of ancient Europe 
objects that really hopefully put Stone Henge in context. Very special indeed. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you, Dan. I feel we had the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. For more about Stonehenge, History Hits February Book of the Month was How to Build Stonehenge by Mike Pitts. Check it out. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. As I say all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating and review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors. That's flying high in the charts. We've got our medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got Warfare as well, dealing with all things military. Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.